now if you've looked this up, you can't answer, but anyone have a clue what that might be? I didn't either. So we're going to find out together, okay? But you know me, whenever we talk about any sort of thing, I think one of the most important tools of any kind of study is context. So I'd like to set the context. Uh, you know, of course, we think of Winston Churchill as the, uh, the, the great prime minister of England during the war. Um, he is famous for his oratory, for his speeches. Uh, one of the things I did, just again reminding myself of that, I, I listened to a few uh, podcasts about uh, Winston Churchill as an orator. And apparently rhetoric is, is the science of speech. Uh, while he was in India uh, in, in a service, he had a lot of free time, so he did a lot of reading, and he wrote a book on the, the scaffolding of rhetoric. So he was very intentional about how he crafted his messages and how he, um, he would choose words to, and rhythm and all of that to make the speech as powerful as it was. So he, but God used that to really unite the nation. His speech kind of reminds me of Ronald Reagan, the great communicator. His, his speech could just bring the, together the people when they needed it. The key is World War II, though, though Churchill was a part of World War I as well, saw that through. Um, and, 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 but we, we think of him in terms of World War II. Uh, just to get some of the big things, uh, when we think of World War II, for us in America, it starts at Pearl Harbor. And so, you know, that, that, that's always the frame. Americans always think about our frame of reference. Of course, World War II started at Pearl Harbor. But for the Europeans, it started before that. And so some of the ones who were involved, Japan, Germany, Italy, and, and Russia. Well, Russia was against Germany, but Japan invades Manchuria, 1931. 1936, fascist Italy invades, conquers, and annexes Ethiopia, because Ethiopia is right next door. <laughs> Not, okay, Ethiopia is in Africa, but they went ahead and seized Ethiopia. Interestingly, Mussolini was kind of a he, he was a Hitler before Hitler, and Hitler was following his example and liked the idea of the fascist learned a salute from Mussolini. Hitler's called Der Führer, which means the leader in German. Um, uh, Mussolini was Il Duce, which means leader in Italian. Anyway, um, so, so Italy was already starting up in 36, 35, 36. Japan invades China in 1937. 1938, Germany incorporates Austria in the Anschluss. And you all know about that because you've seen Sound of Music. And that was one of those things. Remember when um, Captain Von Trump, was he a captain? You know, he's not going to cooperate, so he's got to leave because um, Germany is absorbing Austria because they're Germans. And so Austria will now become a part of Germany in March of 1938. Um, then in 19, September of 1938, Germany, Italy, Great Britain, and France all signed the Munich Agreement. And that forces Czechoslovakia to surrender to Germany, the Sudetenland. Now again, that was a part of the whole thing. How, why would they do that? That was a region of Czechoslovak area that was um, primarily ethnically German. And so the German says, therefore, we should have that territory. So Austria, they're basically German, so they're part of our country. 
this part of Czechoslovakia, well, they're basically Germans, <laughs> so we're going to take that. And um, Germany, or, I mean, Italy, Great Britain, France all agreed to that, the Munich Agreement. Now, I think of that, we, we, we kind of forget that sometimes in America, but that's leading the way towards World War II, and it was a kind of an appeasement. Okay, you want this territory, we'll be satisfied? Okay, Munich Agreement. Okay, are you satisfied now? But in many ways, it kind of reminds me of what Russia has done in Ukraine. Crimea, that's essentially Russia. Uh, the eastern part of Ukraine, they're ethnically Russian. So we want that property. You know, and, and, and Europe against Germany, they thought, well, let's just give them, a, give them what they want, and then they'll leave us alone. Like, you know, if a dog's threatening to bite you, you let him bite your left hand and say, if he bites my left hand, he'll leave the rest of you alone. But see, that was, I think that's something we should learn from history. Um, then March 31, 1939, France and Great Britain guarantee the integrity of the borders of the Polish state. This is huge. They see Germany is expanding. And so um, Great France and Great Britain say, um, if you invade Poland, <clears throat> you know, that's like the NATO. Then you're at war with us. And guess what happened? They eventually invade Poland, and that's what that's really where World War II begins in terms of Europe. Um, again, the fascist Italy invades and annexes Albania. So you see these two fascists, um, and there's so many factors involved, right? But um, absorbing the territories around them. September 1, 1939, Germany invades Poland. World War II is, has begun. Now, America is still sitting it out. Uh, September 3rd, honoring their guarantee of Poland's borders, Great Britain and France declare war on Germany. World War II is on. America does not begin until December 1941. So uh, over two years, we're watching on the sidelines. And a big part of what's going on in America is, that's a European problem, it's not our problem. We, we, now remember, this is 1939. Okay, here's a, a will be the history test. I'll get my ruler here. Oops. Um, can anyone tell me when did World War II end? 45. Well, okay, good. 1945. When did World War One end? That's the question I meant to ask. Well, <laughs> hmm? 1918, 1919. So 20 years later. Same actors. China, uh, Germany is, is trying to seize up property, acting aggressive. And who wants to go back into such a... Now, that was a devastating, horrible war. And so the Americans are saying, this isn't our problem. It's a European issue. Again, I'd see some parallels with the Ukraine. What does that have to deal with us? It's a tyrant go gobbling up territory. And you know what? The more they eat, the more they want. Uh, that's something to you know we could maybe to learn from history. Um, Nineteen forty to April to June, Germany invades Denmark, Norway, and Norway. Denmark surrenders on the day of attack. I think it was six hours between attack and surrender. It was. Uh, I watched a movie, a documentary kind of thing about that, and. Uh, the Germans were had been massing at the border, 
And when they finally came across with all their armor and everything, they literally were met at the border by, with soldiers on bicycles and rifles. Uh, so they quickly surrendered. Um, May 10th, May of 1940 to June 1940, Germany attacks Western Europe. So, okay, they took Poland, and now it begins. France and the Low Countries, uh, like the, you know that we call the Netherlands, Belgium, and Netherlands, Luxembourg. Now, the ones that have windmills because they're you know kind of like uh, New Orleans and all that. They're below sea level, and they've got to do something to you know keep the water up. So Germany attacks all those areas. And then from July to October of 1940, the air war known as the Battle of Britain, okay, uh, where, where, America, where Germany is trying to prepare for the attack, the land attack on, on England. And the first thing they're going to use is, because that's you know, the whole blitzkrieg. They would go in with their air, their air warfare. They were going to wipe them out. And that's, a, again, a very dramatic story. It was a horrific time. That's a, some basic timeline to be thinking, okay? Now, the event I'm going to be talking about is right at the beginning of 1941, but you kind of, you get the feel. It's when this slowly approaching darkness, and then all of a sudden, they call it Blitzkrieg, which means lightning war. Boom, they just, they're in. Before you even know, can pull the, the alarm, it sees half your country. And, um, and so they slowly, through, through treaty, and then through war, seized Poland, seized Western Europe. France has fallen. And if they're, as they head west, the next place to go is England. Okay, so I thought sometimes you need a graphic. So that's a timeline. This will make it all clear. Any questions? That could be a little more information than we could use. Here's a, a smaller one. The, just the big details, but I want to focus in just a, a little bit more on, on that than, and look at uh, this area here. So what we're saying is, 1939, um, the war begins. Now Hitler has been, he's been, he's been, you know, building the the framework for this for a decade, more than a decade, but it's actually. Declared war in Europe uh, in 1939. And some of the big things, again, I'm just showing you what we've been talking about. Um, I was like, you've heard the story about uh, one of the ways they tried to encourage the, the British, it's such a British war slogan, keep calm and carry on. <laughs> and that's so they printed posters of that. Um, so Germany invades Poland. Britain and France de declare war in 39. 40, uh, Germany takes France. And, um, and in 1940, the same time frame, uh, 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 Churchill becomes the prime minister. And so, you know, so, so what a time to become prime minister your nation's at war. Your allies have fallen. The enemy is, is right across this brief, small bit of water called the English Channel. And uh, congratulations, you're supposed to lead us out of this, through this mess. That's, that's what he inherits. Um, also, 
You see the thing with children. Remember, when, especially when they, with the Battle of Britain, with, with war coming, they start moving the children away from the borders and out of the big cities up into the, the rural areas. And so we have families opening their homes to London children who are trying to avoid the bombings. And remember we talked, was it Sunday night, about the, um, the, the British uh, man who, who, who gathered, saved 699 children, getting them out of Europe as the Nazis are approaching onto trains and buses and whatever to get into England, and again, finding homes for them. So England, the whole country is being totally turned around. Um, the Battle of Britain begins in July and goes, we say, technically till about October 1940. We'll talk a little bit more of that later. Um, and so 1941, uh, the war is continuing. We don't get into it until here. So war begins in Europe in the beginning of 1939. End of 1941, America comes in. Now, what's really important to remember is basically 1940 and 1941, England is all by himself. Their ally, France, is conquered. Now, the, interestingly, uh, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get say this wrong sometimes tonight. I keep wanting to say Hitler. Churchill was, was saying, we're not, we're not releasing the French from their treaty. So in other words, fight for resistance. But they were, they were taking every kind of measure in England. Stay calm and carry on. Keep calm, carry on. Uh, they were on the, on the coasts. They were going through the villages, the towns on the coast, and removing all the street signs. So when the Germans came, came in on the ground, why make it easy for them? Uh, they were that. I mean, they were preparing in so many ways, um, expecting invasion, and I think even moving some of their financial resources to Canada, and even you know plans ready to, to move our government to Canada if needs be. That's how real it was. Is it is it threatening? Look at what they did to the rest of Europe. That's the context of where we are. So to get a feel for that, I'd like to watch a couple of. Um, of uh, Churchill uh, speeches, just just some clips. Again, he was such a master orator, and, and really, I don't know that these do justice uh, to in terms of the audio and all of that. But but just give us a feel for some of the things he was saying. So in May, uh, he's just become he's he's just uh, become prime minister, which means technically the king has asked him to form a government, and he has. So now he's coming in. Have you ever watched a parliament in, in England? Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, less, it's, it's less civilized than a kindergarten class. <laughs> There's all this. So, so here's a divided country. The enemy's at the gate, and he's coming to lay out some of his thoughts. So here is uh, his speech, the first house to the House of Commons, um, having just become prime minister. I said to those who joined the government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask what is our policy? 
I will say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might, with all the strength that God can give us. To wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory there is no survival. Let that be realized. No survival for the British Empire. No survival for all that the British Empire stood for. No survival for the urge and impulse of the ages that mankind will move forward towards its goal. But I take up my task with buoyancy and hope. I feel sure that our cause will not be suffered to fail among men. At this time, I feel entitled to claim the able. And I say, come then, let us go forward together with our united strength. So he's saying it's going to be hard. He doesn't, and he's saying it's, it's, it's going to be hard. It's going to be long. I promise what, you know, the blood, sweat, and tears. That was, that was his uh, inaugural, address, inaugural, inaugural address. Um, another famous one was uh, just a few days, a little bit later, June. So this was in May, middle of May, middle of June. You're one month into it, and France has fallen. What General Vagon has called the Battle of France is over. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty. So bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, Men will still say, this was their fighting power. Some of these lines you'll, you'll have heard from him. He's saying that in the darkest time. He's giving them something for, but notice he's saying the, the civilization is at stake. But did you notice, and every word he spoke was measured. 
And there was in there a, a, a tip to the United States, do not think that you can avoid this. And that was his, his urging and pleading that somehow the United States would become a part of it. As he said, uh, in the French, they called it the Battle of France, and the Battle of France was over. And so now he's looking across the English Channel and saying, the Battle of Britain is about to fall on us. And, and when you look at what the Germans did in their Blitzkrieg, how they would flatten cities, how they would just so destroy and pillage, that's a terrifying thought. And so here they're feeling alone, isolated. He keeps talking about the fact we're an island. Um, in the Battle of Britain, one of the things, another speech he talks about was that was all in the, that was in the air. They came in and, 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 and bombed and bombed and bombed and... Um, it was a fighter force of, of the British, you know, that primarily fought them off. They were helped with the radar and spotters, but it was the fighter pilots, fighter pilots, who kept them off and saved saved England. A number of those were trained right here in Terrell at the British Flight Training School. And the part of the problem was during that time, if you tried to practice flying over Britain, you might get shot down. Um, you come to Texas, the ground is flat, there's no enemy, and you're not even going to run into trees. It's just, uh, you know, so we still, we there are 20 cadets, or maybe 21, 22, buried here that died in training. It was serious business. But I wanted to share with you uh, some words uh, from of his thoughts, basically, the Battle of Britain was over. Or, actually, still going, actually. The gratitude of every home in our island, in our empire, and indeed throughout the world, except in the abodes of the guilty, goes out to the British airmen, who, undaunted by odds, unwearied in their constant challenge and mortal danger, are turning the tide of the world war by their promise and by their devotion. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. Again, what a masterful... I mean, we, we have, decades later, we still know those words. And, the, and, and that's the context. He's talking about those who laid paid the last full measure of devotion, as, as Lincoln calls it, uh, in the air over Britain to save their homeland, and they did. A little thoughts then about the Battle of Britain. Um, over a thousand RAF, Royal Air Force, planes were shot down. 544 pilots were killed. Now notice that, that's about half the pilots as the planes that went down. Many of these guys had their airplanes shot out from underneath them. They got up, got another plane. One of the biggest problems was can they, how, where, they, where are they going to train and build enough aircraft and pilots to fight the onslaught? Um, the Germans, uh, perhaps as many as 1,800 or more than 2,500 uh, 2, air crew were killed. Um, as the, as the battle continued, so we, we think of it as um, 
the, the, the Battle of Britain stopping in, in October. That's when the, the daylight attacks ended. The continued bombing of the cities went on for a while. But overall, 40,000 civilian deaths from the bombing of the cities by the Germans. 50,000 injured. Homes destroyed. Every night the sirens, and you've seen the pictures of them down in the little makeshift uh, shelters, down in the subways. I remember reading the story, that's where Julie Andrews was discovered. You know, she, you know, you'd get down there and she'd start singing. And this remarkable young girl had a range of four octaves. Anyway, so this was, this was Britain. A period of darkness, a period that could easily lead to despair. It was affecting everybody. Those who were on the battlefield, those who had loved ones on the battlefield, and right there at home, the threat was real. And they felt alone. They were running out of money to buy the weapons that they needed. They were running out of, they could not produce the kind of equipment at the rate it was needed. A little map just again show you, you see here Germany uh, coming, just, just continuing to expand. Here's Italy, here's the Germans, they've swallowed up Netherlands, Belgium, they've swallowed up France, and here's, here's Dunkirk, remember that story? Right across from the, the, the English Channel. And that's the scary thing. France has fallen. They're coming for us. And, and then comes this onslaught. And there was really a question, how can we, how can we continue? Uh, there's another picture that just shows you the broader scheme of how they're swallowing up east and west. Thankfully, by God's grace, Germany broke their treaty with Russia and invaded Russia. And that was... Wonderful, because now there were two fronts. And oddly enough, now America is supporting Russia and Britain. And we're sending armaments to, to Russia to help fight Germany. In the midst of all this, relationships with England, uh, we were in between, you know, ambassadors were shifting. Our, the ambassador in the early part of the war was a man named Joseph Kennedy. You may know that name. Um, frankly, Kennedy's advice to the president, President Roosevelt, was England's not going to win. England can't survive. Uh, we need to just sit back and let them fall and let Hitler take Europe. Uh, he didn't think very highly of, of Churchill, and he didn't think the British could hold off. So his advice to the president was, let him go. The president had a friend named Harry Hopkins. He truly was a friend. He was a man he deeply respected. Now, some, uh, uh, another politician came to him one time, kind of complained about how friendly he was with Harry Hopkins. Uh, Harry lived in the White House for about three years. And, and, and he was kind of like, why, why do you put so much trust? Because he gave him incredible trust. And, uh, and, 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 you know, he wasn't an elected official. He was, you know, just serving and, and the president said, you wait till you are in a position like this. Harry is the only man I know who has absolutely no self-interest. He serves to serve. He's not trying to get anything out of me. 
He just wants to serve. And, and that was such a rare commodity, he trusted him. And so I can't remember now if it was Harry's idea or the president, but the president decided he, he needed someone who could speak for him in England. And so he sent Harry Hopkins. Go get the lay of the land. Go meet this man, Churchill. Go, go talk to him. Go find out what to do. And um, and so Harry, this is this is the Harry with the president FDR. Remember, President Roosevelt had a um, he had childhood polio, and so when you have so often, if you rarely see him standing, if you do, he's he's kind of holding up on something, or you know, kind of discreetly holding someone's arm. But here he is with uh, Harry. Harry's fifty years old at this point, and here he is again, uh, and, and he was known for. Not looking like a very healthy kind of guy. He wasn't. Uh, he died at the age of 56. Um, he had cirrhosis of the liver. He wrote a letter to Winston Churchill and said, here I'm in the hospital with cirrhosis of the liver. And he says, and the sad part is, I've never touched alcohol. <laughs> so I've got the alcoholic disease without the alcohol. Um, he was a chain smoker, but he just, uh, he had had a, ser a serious illness as a child. Anyway, he had, he, when he went to uh, England on this mission, he was already very, he, he was weak and ill, but he went. Now remember, traveling across the Atlantic was not an easy thing. A lot of times it was still by boat, or, and if they flew, it was a, that was a challenge. We're so used to our comfort. You know, you can get in this plane now, and it's air-conditioned, and it's, uh, you can watch your favorite movie. It used to be they could serve a meal. Now you can choose between uh, chips or pretzels. <laughs> but, but here we see him, you know, basically taking off on his trip. Uh, here he is leaving Lisbon for his, uh, on his way. So, you know, you do it in stages. They said he, his hat always looked like someone had sat on it. And it was suggested that maybe because someone sat on it, he just didn't care. Harry Hopkins. Here he is. Uh, the, so, so Churchill, he, he met with him for um, dinner, and their brief dinner visit just turned into one of these countless hours. They, they just hit it off. He did, there was something about his genuineness. Uh, he was a very bright man, uh, just winsome, very winsome personality, and they just really, really hit it off. And so then Churchill basically gave him a personal tour of the United Kingdom, as far as as far as the war, showing him where where the challenges are, what they were doing, what their needs were. He just basically took them along. Getting on this aircraft, uh, anything about that aircraft strike you was interesting? Uh, the seats. The, the seats, yeah. Not, that's almost as bad as what we have now. Uh, what else? You know, the steps, those are great. It's here and there. It's here and there. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, do you notice the V? They both did. You know, that was his... Uh, that was his theme, V for victory. But yeah, there, so yeah, you, again, you look at this, and here they, here one of the great leaders of the world is getting into this aircraft that we would barely throw our postage sacks into. <laughs> but they, so they traveled around. They went up uh, north, and and, and um, uh, here's uh, traveling and, and visit various ports. He's at the, here. He's at the northern port. Um, and, and, and just personally being toured around 
Again, do you notice Harry over there? He's looking a little disheveled, doesn't he? Um, but here, he, and, and so Churchill basically, uh, it became clear, I guess the president communicated to him, you can trust him completely. You can tell him what you want only me to hear. And again, that's a rare commodity. But, but Churchill had the insight, one, to like the man, and to two, to recognize the significance of this visit. This is, wasn't just one more diplomat. And frankly, he probably knew that you know, Kennedy was no friend. Um, so he, 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 he charmed him, but he showed him everything with complete honesty. And what he wanted him to understand is the war is real. And we can't make it alone. Now, we were... They were buying stuff from us and they were trying to work out deals, but they were literally running out of the money to make that happen. So here they are uh, traveling. They went up to Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, and they, while they were there, they stayed here at the Station Hotel. Any guess why it's called the Station Hotel? Next to us, you know, next to a train station. Yeah. So, but, but, this isn't a Motel 6. It's still there today. Today it's called, the, it's in Glasgow. It's called the, um, the Millennium Hotel now. But they came here and, and, and just, and had a dinner together. And I'm not sure all of who was there. Here is um, a newspaper article from the time. You can see the hotel there at the bottom. And, and here's the, the characters. And I don't know if you can read this, but it says from left, here's Winston Churchill. His wife, Clementine, or uh, he called her Clemmy, uh, Provost Patrick Dolan, and here's Harry Hopkins. Again, he, he looks a little older than 50, I would say. Man. But he's not feeling well. It's been a hard trip. But he is slugging through the hard trip to see and learn all that he can. So they had a dinner. And, you know, basically, uh, this is kind of towards the end of the trip. And I don't know if there was other speech, if there were speeches or conversation, but finally, uh, during the meal, or at the end of the meal, I guess, uh, Harry Hopkins rose as if to give a toast and made some remarks. Okay, and so now I'm going to read. Let you just read from um, biography by Gilbert uh, Martin, or Martin Gilbert, I guess. That night, Churchill and Hopkins were given dinner in Glasgow by the regional commissioner for Scotland, Tom Johnston, at the Station Hotel. Churchill's doctor, who was among those present, recorded in his diary. I sat next, sat next to Harry Hopkins, an unkempt figure. After time, he got up and turning to the PM, what would that be? Very good, we're good, we're, we're learning. I suppose you wish to know what I am going to say to President Roosevelt on my return. Well, I am going to quote you one verse from that book of books, in the truth of which Mr. Johnston's mother and my own Scottish mother were brought up. Whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. And then he added very quietly, even to the end. The 
Doctor goes on to write, I was surprised to find the PM in tears. He knew what it meant. Even to us, the doctor added, the words seemed like a rope thrown to a, dry, to, to a drowning man. Um, what's the book he's referring to? Bible, Book of Ruth. And so notice, now his mother was Scottish, uh, he says, and so he was raised, uh, his mother was a very godly woman. I don't know about his faith in particular. I think he went to a, a religious uh, college, but you know, that could be along the likes of an SMU. Uh, it has religious heritage, but, but his mother was a very godly woman and uh, taught him well in the faith. Uh, I think it's interesting and, and so he's in Scotland, and so he's saying, my mother's Scot Scottish. Mr. Johnson here was raised in a Scottish home. Um, so we, we know the Bible. Uh, Churchill knew the Bible. Uh, he, you, know, you know, he knew the, and, and I was listening in his oratory. It was, it was just infused with scriptural, everything about the scripture, the rhythm, the words, the thoughts, the Book of Common Prayer, the hymns of the church were part of the influences in his whole language. But um, so, but it's interesting how many politicians today, off the cuff, totally unprepared remarks, get would get up and summarize his his thought by quoting a verse from anywhere. They might struggle their way through John three sixteen, but for the Book of Ruth, he quoted it verbatim from the King James, and and. And I, that's a, that to me is a, a compelling thought. Here it is in context in Ruth and the King James as they were quoting. Um, maybe I should fill in some helpers on this. And she, Naomi, said, Behold, thy sister-in-law has gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. This is speaking to Ruth. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. Whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. What's Ruth saying to Naomi? Let's start with the text. Total commitment. Total commitment. Um, and again, she was raised as an idol-worshipping uh, pagan. Her sister-in-law was going back to the idol-worshipping pagan deities. But Ruth is saying, too, that it's a total commitment to her mother-in-law and to her mother-in-law's God. But it's a total commitment. Nothing, you know, I will, um, I will die. I'll be buried with you. That's how my commitment will follow through. I embrace the God of the Bible, Yahweh. I embrace you. I embrace the Hebrew people. And so she, this is a verse often used in talking about conversion among the Jews even to this day. Your God will be my God. Your people, my people. But in saying that, she was saying, 
I will never, never leave your side. And so, um, Mr. Hopkins was using this text as an expression of his heart of where the people should be in America. That we will be by your side. We will not abandon you. And, and notice he, he even throw, throw, added his own statement, even to the end. Now, notice he is not saying this is the commitment from the president. What he's saying is, this is the counsel I will give the president. You have shown me everything. I understand the situation. And my president, my counsel to the president will be, be a Ruth to the Naomi of England. Be by her, her side, stand with her, and do not forsake her even to the end. Support her. Now at this time, Roosevelt was not there. He, he would make continually make promises and then be very slow in following through on them. He was, you know, there was a strong pacifist uh, fervor in the land. And, and, and so he was doing his very best to walk the political middle line of showing some support and help for England, but not um, stepping on the landmine that would offend the pacifists. And so uh, it was unclear. You know, again, assurances were made that never followed through. Would America have really come through? I think um, the greatest friend that, that, that um, Churchill had was Japan. Because their attack on America. And then even then, uh, America declared war on Japan, but not Germany. Until Hitler, because he's already had an ally commitment with Japan, he declared war on America, and therefore we, therefore Roosevelt put it to the Congress, declare war on Germany. I don't know, what, if we had not been attacked, I don't know if Roosevelt ever would have come along in time to save them. But that was the heart of Roosevelt's greatest advisor, and that might have, and again, Roosevelt had been listening to Kennedy, who kept saying, it's a lost cause. Do not get involved in this thing. And he, and he did not like and spoke ill of Churchill. And so Hopkins had to come back and say, it's a good cause. It's a good man. We need to, we need, they need our complete support. This was in, um, uh, let me see my date here. It was on the 17th of January, 1941. We did not get into it until when? December 7th, when we were attacked. Um, it was a few days before we declared war on Germany. It was almost a year after this. But, but what is striking to me is here is a statesman of a previous generation that when he wants to speak from the depths of his heart to the depths of the heart, he quoted the scripture that spoke of total commitment based on faith. And, and so this, and Churchill understood completely 
And right there in front of everybody, he just started weeping because he saw hope. Because he'd been saying again and again, if we have to do this alone. And he even was talking. And he would talk about if we become occupied. And we become, uh, if, if the famine of occupation hits us, we are counting on the the other, you know, the, the new world to come to us. And he's thinking Canada and hoping America. But I mean, it, it was real in his mind, America, England, and they were training people. They were setting up uh, secret storehouses for the underground and their resistance. I mean, they were ready to be occupied, expecting that possibility. And so when he stood up there and said, quoting the scriptures, I'm... Uh, whether thou goest, I will go. Whether thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, thy God my God, even to the end. It was such a relief to Churchill that he just started weeping uh, in front of everyone. And it was such a moving thing, his physician put it in his diary to notice the fact. So that's the Bible verse that caused Churchill to weep. <coughs> Any other thoughts or comments, questions? Yes, sir. One of our statements, I'm not sure who, but I think it was Al Gore, who wanted to admonish somebody. He meant to quote John 3.16, but he quoted John 6, or he said John 16.3, which was, they do these things because they have not known me or my father. <laughs> Little did he know he was going to get right. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. Sometimes, or they'll, or they'll, or they'll rip them terribly out of context, yeah. or they'll miss. Yeah. Well, this signing those billboards or painting those billboards about abortion hmm. uh, all over, all over. Uh, well, I forget what it was. I know it's in California. Yeah, but yeah what they were that took that much out of context. Yes, love thy neighbor or something was yeah. the, the context of uh, favoring abortion. Yeah. Uh, but again, this, you know, he is putting it with the heart. He understands the heart of that passage. And it's just striking to me that that's the passage that came to his heart and mind uh, when he wanted to, to, to speak his heart. Um, <clears throat> he died in 1946, so he did not, um, he did not, he got to see the war end. Um, he was a man greatly used of the Lord. I don't know for sure where his faith was, but he sure learned a lot from his mother and her faith. And, and last uh, Sunday you talked about the fellow who saved the children out of Czechoslovakia. Yes. Wanted to send them to America. Roosevelt refused to take them. Yeah. And Roosevelt turned back a ship of Jews, sent them back to Germany. Wow. Yeah. Wouldn't take them in. Yeah, when you think about that, the, the two, they thought, had America said yes to children, they thought they could get 2,000 children to America. Um, but they were refused. And then there was that ship that came full of refugees, and they were sent back to die in the concentration camps. Um, yeah, so, so we were, there were, uh, he was very definitely trying to stay out, of, you know, to, to not get, to not be committed, to not be involved. And his dear friend and a trusted advisor picked up a different heart. We have to be involved. And thank the Lord we did get involved. Um, I don't know 
how England would have fared against Germany had they been left on their own. We begin to see threads of that now with the Ukrainian thing. Oh, let's not antagonize the Russians. Yeah. We'll, we'll send this, but not that. Right. And, and so, yes, there was a lot of that. We, um, For example, early on in the convoys, we didn't want to get too involved, so we're not going to send American ships. So the, so the British had to send their warships to escort the escorts back with the needed material. It was, and, and, you know, so there was a lot. Let's not get too involved. We don't want to get, get ourselves entangled in, in this war. Instead of saying, these people need our help. This is a tyrant gobbling up the free lands. We need to do what's right. Yeah. I, that's what I keep thinking about the, the lessons of World War II and this um, land-grabbing tyrant named Hitler. That's how I'm seeing the, the Ukraine situation. So someone go over there and quote look root to them. Well, with that, I think we will stop and find out how we can pray for one another.